Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fitz on Fantasy. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. Find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. So good to have you here with me as we welcome in the month of November, critical month in fantasy football. It's usually the month that separates the wheat from the chaff. Hopefully you are the wheat and not the chaff. You don't ever want to be the chaff. Now, in just a few minutes, I am going to bring in this week's guest, Jim Coventry of Rotowire. But first, let's get the weekly injury update from Dr. Deepak Chona. Take it away, Dr. Chona. All right. Well, thanks, Pat. Here we go with your injury report. Starting with Cooper Cup. Now, the video suggests an ankle sprain. Even though it looked at least like a moderate severity injury on the video, he did walk off without assistance, and being able to put weight on it early does bode very well. We would give him a solid chance of playing week 8. Not yet guaranteed, though we'll have to see how practice reports develop on Cup. Then we have Jamar Chase. Now the fact that Jamar Chase has a small fracture in his hip actually works in his favor because bone healing tends to be pretty reliable in this location. We'd anticipate his return about 5 weeks from the injury, or in other words week 12. Now he also has this concurrent labrum tear, and that's a bit of a wild card because some of these do end up needing surgery. Most commonly, however, he'd be able to play through this and then consider surgery if he needs it in the offseason. In the meantime, we'd expect his typical stud level of play when he does return. Then we have Devontae Parker, who left Sunday's game with a knee injury. The video looked like an MCL sprain. The average on that would be two to four weeks, but they'll probably get an MRI on Monday to make sure it's not something bigger where the meniscus is potentially torn as well. Then we have Debo Samuel. Now he missed this game and most moderate severity hamstring strains take three weeks for wide receivers. So we would expect his return to the field around week 10. They typically return at about 90% of their pre-injury production, but unfortunately initially carry an elevated approximately 20% re-injury risk for the first two games back. Then we have Mike Williams, who was injured last week. The video looked like a severe high ankle sprain, which generally costs wide receivers four to six weeks. Performance dips do last the full six weeks, so even if he plays before that point, we would anticipate limitations. And then we have Mike Williams' teammate, Keenan Allen. Now, the dud that Allen put up in week seven was really not all that unexpected because wide receivers returning from severe hamstring strains do tend to show limitations until at least six weeks post-injury. That bodes well for his week nine performance, which should be close to full strength as long as he doesn't re-aggravate the injury between now and then. And then we have DeAndre Swift. Now, we didn't see the usual workload that we're get, that we've become accustomed to for DeAndre Swift. It wouldn't be crazy if this touch distribution between Swift and Jamal Williams was all part of a plan to ramp back up slowly, given that Swift was coming off of multiple injuries. It's not clear how the snap counts are going to look next week, but we do expect a fully healthy Swift, given that he'll be six weeks out from injuries that usually average four. Then we have Ezekiel Elliott. Now, the combination of a grade two MCL plus a thigh bruise would cost most running backs three to four weeks. Zeke has historically been pretty aggressive about returning off of injury quickly, so we would lean towards closer to that three-week timeline. Once he's five weeks post-injury is when our data projects the return of his full pre-injury productivity. And then we have Green Bay receiver Alan Lazard. The mechanism plus his comments together suggest a, a shoulder subluxation, 
which is like a partial dislocation where the labrum tears as well. Skill position players average just over two weeks out, so we'd lean towards a return week 9 or 10. Going to follow practice reports closely on Alan Lazard. And then we have Dalton Schultz. Had a good game this week. We would expect him to continue to play and continue to improve significantly over the next few weeks. Schultz has been dealing with a PCL tear, which has had the expected performance impact on the first half of his season. So he's a strong buy-low candidate going forward for season-long owners. Then we have Gus Edwards, who after Thursday's game has a hamstring strain. And hamstring strains post-ACL are not terribly uncommon, but strong hamstrings do protect that new ACL that he just had done. So we would lean towards them taking it slow with him, likely missing one week and then coming back after their bye. Mark Andrews, then video suggested a possible AC joint sprain of the shoulder. It's hard to know for sure because they do vary, but the average would be two to four weeks. Again, with them having this week 10 bye, it wouldn't be surprising to see him out the week nine and then coming back week 11. And that's all for today. I'll throw it back to you, Pat. Thank you to Dr. Deepak Chona for this week's injury report. Mercifully, it was a great deal lighter than last week's injury report. And joining me now is Jim Coventry of Rotowire. You can catch him every week on the Sirius XM Fantasy Channel. And I encourage you to seek out Jim's shows because he's truly one of the most insightful, most observant fantasy analysts out there. And you can find him on Twitter at Jim Coventry NFL. Hello, Jim. Great to have you here. Hi, Pat. Super excited to be here. Cannot believe we're about halfway through the regular season, but we're ready to keep rolling. We are, man. So there is a fantasy league called the King's Classic. It's a 14-team league full of analysts. Uh, the draft takes place in August during the Fantasy Football Expo, and Jim Coventry took down the 2021 King's Classic League. Jim, how is the title defense coming along so far? Uh, the title defense is not going as well as the title year. There were so many pitfalls, and I happened to be on the wrong side of a little Cam Akers, a little Elijah Mitchell, a little Chase Edmonds, a um, little Elijah Moore. Um, so I am hoping to string together a little bit of a run and make it to the playoffs. It'd be nice and see what could happen from there. Last year, though, it was the Triple Crown. One points, one record, won the playoffs. It was a great season. Not quite this year, but we got a little time. <laughs> yeah, when you are in a 14-team experts league, uh, going against some of the luminaries that you had to uh, get past last year, you cannot step in too many gopher holes. And uh, yeah, there were a lot of gopher holes this year. I've stepped in some of the same ones you've stepped in in that league. So uh, yeah, let's let's just move on. But uh, <laughs> yes, that's a can't, great idea, Pat. Can't can't win them all. Um, no. Jim, let's talk about the Atlanta Falcons. And uh, speaking of gopher holes, what is your take on Atlanta's offensive approach this season? Because a lot of people are upset with Arthur Smith for squandering the talents of Kyle Pitts and Drake London, two of the bigger gopher holes out there, Pitts in particular, a third round pick in a lot of drafts. But taking a more pragmatic view, uh, I mean, Smith is minimizing the weaknesses of Marcus Mariota. And he's got a, a deeply flawed team at, at four and four and leading the NFC South. So is Arthur Smith doing a good job or a bad job with this offense? 
So, Pat, a number of things this year that have come to my mind are the times we see the disconnect between fantasy football and NFL football. And this is one of those right now because Arthur Smith is doing a masterful job. Defenses of today are prepared to stop explosive passing attacks. Uh, We know last year the two high shells came in. Teams this year sometimes are running five-man fronts. There's a lot of stunting going on to identify weakness in the offensive line and attacking them. But what Arthur Smith has done, He's creating numbers advantages. He has a mobile quarterback, so he leans into that a little bit to create some space. But he uses two and three tight ends, extra running backs. He's creating that numbers advantage where defenses are built lighter right now because of the passing attacks. They're not built heavier. And if you just went with a normal 12 personnel, which is one one running back at two tight ends, Defenses can handle that. But Arthur Smith is going beyond that and pushing the envelope further, and defenses just can't handle that. Now, I thought against Cincinnati, he got a little irresponsible because when the game was out of hand, at some point you have nothing to lose to try to pass the ball. I thought in the second half that was a mistake. But other than that, look, they are in first place in their division. They're 4-4. Four and four. How do you argue with Arthur Smith, right, Pat? Yeah, I agree, Jim. Um, and and maybe we'll see, like I've told people not to drop Drake London. A lot of people just want to flat out drop him. And some people have even suggested dropping Kyle Pitts because it's possible we see defenses uh, sort of react to this eventually and, and start playing heavier boxes and like really daring the Falcons to throw. And maybe at some point they they do. You know, I mean, we saw Mariota throw 28 times against the Panthers in week eight. So it's it's not like, uh, I don't know. We, we've seen it a little bit before. Drake London was pretty valuable the first three weeks of the season. We saw uh, Kyle Pitts have a thousand yard year in 2021. So um, I don't know if we can totally slam the door on these guys having weekly fantasy value. You know, Pat, the biggest problem with having them is deciding to start them or not in a given week. That's the problem. With Kyle Pitts, it's like he's on your roster. You feel compelled to start him. You get the one for 25 in week four. You get the three for nine in week seven. You cash in on the touchdown in week six, but only 19 yards. And then we see that beautiful, shiny 80-yard and a touchdown in week eight. Now you're compelled to start him for the next four weeks because that is there. But that has not been his body of work. And, Pat, it's been the routes run. He has run 16 or fewer routes in each of his last four games, and this week I haven't tracked yet. So he's not running routes, and that is very problematic. From an NFL standpoint, Pitts is a superstar. There is no questioning it. But if you're running that few routes, what is your real upside? I should say, what is your real floor week to week? Right. It's it's dangerously low, and that's what we've seen. Um, let's turn to the Bengals for a second, Jim. What do you expect to see from them? And by the way, we're recording this on Halloween, Monday, October 31st. So the Bengals have not played yet. They play the Browns tonight. And we're going to see our first taste of the Bengals without Jamar Chase. Um, I've heard you talk on your radio show about Zach Taylor's efforts to become less predictable. 
Like the Bengals have used a lot more shotgun of late and uh, they're actually running the ball out of shotgun every once in a while so that the shotgun formation isn't just an automatic tip off to defenses that they're going to be able to pin their ears back and go after Joe Burrow. Do you think Zach Taylor is going to keep defenses guessing effectively without Jamar Chase? And do you think the Bengals might try to run the ball more? set of great questions there. And so, yes, you're absolutely spot on that they're using shotgun as their base, which has been great because when they were under center earlier in the season, like 80% of the time they were running. If they were in the gun, like 90% of the time they were running. They are even using play action out of shotgun and it's working. Now, you bring up the great question about Jamar Chase because obviously he puts the ultimate stress on the deep parts of a defense and you have to account for that speed but this is where they're fortunate obviously T Higgins is no type of speed receiver like Chase but at least he's an alpha receiver and Tyler Boyd is an extremely valuable slot receiver and I think ultimately they're getting a lot more efficiency out of Joe Mixon out of the gun. So I think for four or five weeks, yes, with the gains that Zach Taylor's made, because if he had not made these gains recently, their offense would be doomed. So they do have a great opportunity to move the ball. The explosives may not be there, but Joe Burrow under this current offensive system with the shotgun, he's able to get through a couple of reads and he's got enough weaponry to get open and he has a great check down in Joe Mixon and I think that offensive line because remember Pat when you bring in new people it takes time to gel I think they're starting to put together a little bit of chemistry so I think all together I think this helps now one last thing Pat we've noticed throughout the season to this point Although the teams with heavy pressure rates, top 10 pressure rates, they have been the doom of the Bengals. And the Bengals' recent hot streak has come against a pair of teams that are in the bottom 10 in pressure rate. So we think Zach Taylor solved some things, but we have to be cognizant of the fact we still are at a place where if a team with a lot of pressure faces them, we could still have issues. Yeah, I do think Taylor is putting his offensive line in a better position by making them a little less predictable offensively. Uh, But you make a great point about, I don't know, like we like the individual parts of this offensive line mostly, Um, but it was going to take some time to come together, fitting this many new pieces in. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I think the Bengals are always going to be higher than the league rate uh, in sacks with Joe Burrow back there because he is willing to sit there. And, um, you know, like early Ben Roethlisberger, he reminds me of in a way that he he is willing to take a shot to let his guy try to work downfield to get open and, uh, you know, take a high percentage uh, uh, attempt downfield, a, a high value target. So, yeah, it's interesting, though, and it's exciting how well they've played. Hopefully they can keep it up without Chase. Jim, the Packers offense has been hugely disappointing. and. Somewhat disappointing against Sunday night in Buffalo, albeit against a legitimately good defense this time. But Aaron Jones had a pretty good game. And I have heard you talk about the possibility that Aaron Jones can continue to be a point of light for the Packers offense. Like, Do you think Aaron Jones still has running back one value? I think he does. I mean, the last two weeks, he's put the numbers up to at least substantiate that. But I think where the Packers are kind of losing their grip on things is that 
Last week, we loved it against Washington. Ten targets, nine catches, two touchdowns. One of the plays they ran, it was funny because in that Washington game, they were just trying to get receivers going. They were bringing Torre in there. They were bringing Amari Rodgers in there. Nothing was working. And then all of a sudden, oh, let's put Aaron Jones out on the outside. Oh, guess what? Touchdown pass down the sideline. Aaron Jones is our best wide receiver, and he's a running back. And I thought they finally re-emerged that mindset of, yes, he could be used that way. And then in the Buffalo game, it was great to see 20 carries for 143 yards, but they did not weaponize him at all in the passing games. I mean, four catches for 14 yards, but you could use him in the slot. You could use him out wide, and you could motion him out of the backfield to get him there. He is one of the ultimate joker pieces in the game. But for whatever reason, this coaching staff has been unwilling to use him optimally. Yeah, not enough usage in the passing game. And I wonder if part of it wasn't that, I don't know, earlier in the season, Rodgers was just having so much trouble connecting with his guys on on deep shots. I mean, like, they're was that game against the Giants where it seemed like they had the game well in hand at halftime and then Rodgers comes out and their entire game plan in the second half seemed to be like take these deep shots that weren't coming anywhere close to connecting. And I don't know if if maybe that was an effort to try to free up space for the backs to operate as pass catchers in the flats and underneath. Uh, yeah, it's just... I don't know. It's It's been kind of a dysfunctional offense. I think a lot of it starts with the lack of firepower at wide receiver. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that's a problem that can be solved, even with the trading deadline coming up. Um, Jim is a Chicago guy. What are your impressions of Justin Fields a year and a half into his NFL career? Has he convinced you that he deserves to be considered the Bears quarterback of the future? You know, Pat, it's a very tough question to answer because they obviously haven't gotten him a diverse set of weapons. I love Darnell Mooney, and Darnell Mooney can win at many spots in the field. But as your number one, and he's drawing attention that way, it makes things difficult. And until the New England game, the Bears were reluctant to let Fields get out of the pocket with a pass-first mentality and the ability to run at the same time. I am optimistic on Justin Fields, but I don't feel I have nearly enough data to make a great decision on what his future looks like. Again, optimistic. But realistically, the Bears have to give him a chance to grow, and I think in these last two weeks they have. I was not overly impressed in the Patriots game because I feel that the Bears blindsided the Patriots. They brought out a game plan they hadn't used. And I'm like, what's well, a great game by Fields? But it was clear the defense wasn't prepared. I was very impressed against the Cowboys because the Cowboys saw that game and Fields was still able to move the ball with success against an elite defense. So I do think the that things are looking up, and the Bears have a whole lot of cap space last next year. Now, the offensive line is a train wreck, so he can't, he's not going to be able to be a pocket passer for the foreseeable future, a couple of years at least. And hopefully, with that cap space, some players will want to come to Chicago, and they could get him some receivers, and hopefully between the draft. But to answer your question, I'm optimistic, but I need a lot more data before I'm really convinced one way or the other. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating and a good quarterback draft to see if they decided to junk the Justin Fields uh, experiment or or just go with it and decide that 
you know, they want to try to move forward with him and uh, plow resources into the offensive line and uh, the the wide receivers. So, um, yeah, I, I can't wait to see which way they go on that. Uh, Jim, let me ask, how did you first get into fantasy football? What is your origin story? Well, so as a kid, and it wasn't fantasy sports, but I would play this game called App Baseball, APBA. It was like Stratomatic sure. Baseball. It's like, yeah, so a lot of it's like a tabletop game. And so it was always these simulated, like be a coach, you know, set my lineup, play these games out simulated. And so there was always this idea, you know, of just wanting to run a sports type of, you know, franchise on a tiny level. But there was always that in my mind. This is my young teenage years, maybe even 12, 13 years old on. And that was a really big deal to me. And then when I realized this idea of fantasy sports was out there in the early nineties, I mean, it was just an automatic that I was going to go that route, but getting into the industry was hilarious because I met the woman who is now my wife and she realized, Oh, you watch football all day on Sundays. Well, that's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, she goes, well, if you're going to do that, you better make money doing that. So this is back in, Oh, this is probably 06 or 07, somewhere around there. 06, I think. So she's like, you know what? Let's just go to, there were bookstores back in the end. I know they still are, but they're not dying. Great. Barnes and Noble. Let's look in the back pages of all the fantasy magazines for some contact information for some of these companies. And so I said, all right. Now, I had won a fantasy championship back in the 90s. And so I felt like I knew a little something about football. And I knew I could write. I was an English teacher. And so when I found a few of these addresses, contacts, I just kind of sent some cold calls out to see if I could, you know, break in. Well, I ended up doing like almost like an unpaid work for John Hansen at Fantasy Guru for like most of a year. And then I was able to get stuff published. And then after that, I did another set of cold calls and I ended up getting Lenny Papano saying, you know, he'd bring me out with draft sharks. So I worked there. So that was kind of how it started. And then I ended up at Roto-Wire later down the road. It's been some great people along the way. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Like the the simulation games, APBA, Stratomatic, um, like those were kind of an incubator for people from a certain uh, generation. And I think like, you know, you and I were of that generation. Chris Raybon, I know of Action Network. He and I have compared notes on uh, playing Stratomatic. Um, as, as kids. So yeah, man, uh, that was, uh, that was definitely a way to get into it. And then when, uh, you know, I, for me, it was baseball first before football. Yes. And, and just knowing that, you know, Hey, we can, we can do this with actual real players and, and have like, you know, the season go into our season. Like what a great idea. So what is your position, Jim, since you are a Chicago guy on Chicago style, deep dish pizza? You know, and I don't even know if they technically consider it deep dish pizza. I do. They call it gourmet pizza in the pan. But I'm a Lou Malnati's guy. I cannot get enough Lou Malnati's. Oh, man, you would be jealous of me, Jim. I'm like three quarters of a mile from Lou Malnati's outpost. But we rarely have it because my wife doesn't like it. Oh, oh! how does that happen? That's funny. I lucked out. They they brought them out to the suburbs in the last decade or two. And so I have one that's 10 minutes from the house. So actually, it, it's worked out not as close as yours. Maybe that's good. It's not quite that close. Um, Got to keep the waistline at least somewhat under check. 
How do you feel about two other iconic Chicago foods, the Italian beef sandwich and the Chicago style hot dog? You know, don't eat a lot of hot dogs anymore. When I was younger, I did. But yeah, the Chicago style hot dog, that was always a little something special. They had that celery salt on there. Oh, man. just yes. it, Yeah, that's just the, a wonderful the sport thing. peppers. Yeah. For the, for the uninitiated, the, the Chicago style <laughs> hot dog has got like, there's a lot going on. It's uh, sport peppers, onions, celery salt. What else? Uh, some sort of, is there some red pepper? Uh, mustard. Mustard, yes. Relish, but never ketchup. You're not allowed to put ketchup nope. on it or the Chicago people will have a conniption fit. <laughs> oh, they totally will. They, <laughs> that is so awesome. But yes, they're so particular about it. And then how about Italian beef? What's your favorite Italian beef? Oh, man. Like? So I used to work right by uh, Mr. Beef on River North. So yes. that was my favorite. And I was always a big fan of the combo, which is an Italian sausage uh, in there with the Italian beef. So that that's quite a meal. The combo is a very favorite choice of mine. I've always enjoyed the combo. I did like Al's beef. I grew, was born and raised in Cicero, so I would get down to Taylor Street. It wasn't far at all. So I did like Al's, but uh, Mr. Beef's outstanding as well. Can't go wrong. Yeah. What are a couple of your generally favorite things about Chicago, Jim? <sighs> You know, that's that, there's so much good stuff. The culture. It really, it has to be the culture. And I, when I was younger, I spent a lot more time in the city as opposed to now being closer to 60. But I always loved, you could go to different music venues. I could go to a reggae bar, a blues bar, jazz, and you could hear these different types of music. Or you could go to different plays, musicals, stage plays. There was just so much going on. The culture was just amazing. That that always drew me. Yeah, you can really, uh, like you can go to just about any different kind of restaurant. I mean, you pick a country and there's a restaurant for it. Hell, in the city, there is a, uh, like there are multiple bars for pretty much every NFL team. Like if, if you want to go to a Green Bay Packers bar, like take your pick. There are about eight around the city. Even if you're like a Carolina Panthers fan, there are designated Carolina Panthers bars around the city. So uh, a lot going on always. Um, speaking of the Carolina Panthers, Jim, let's talk about an ex-Panther, Christian McCaffrey. Am I going overboard in thinking that he is going to be an absolute monster for the rest of the regular season, barring injury, of course? And that it is going to take a Herculean effort to knock the CMC teams out of the playoffs in fantasy this year. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel like CMC just gives his investors such a massive advantage the rest of the way now that he is in a potent offense that wants to truly tap into his diverse skill set. Based on yesterday, which is the week eight game, the answer would be yes. But the larger scale answer is, what happens when Debo Samuel gets back on the field? See, ultimately, what Kyle Shanahan wants to do, he wants a number of positionless players. If you have one positionless player, defenses can kind of deduce and figure out, okay, well, you're going to do A or B, and we can kind of deal with that. McCaffrey's a positionless player. So is Debo Samuel. It's basically when you have both of them having two queens on the chessboard. That's really what it is. And it's hard enough to deal with one, right? And then you actually can diversify Brandon Ayuk's role and to a degree, George Kittle's. And at this point, 
And Kyle Juszczyk, actually, as weird as it sounds, for fantasy, he's not a thing. But he allows them to do a lot of diverse stuff. So the answer to your question is, there are going to be games where McCaffrey goes nuclear like he did yesterday. But there are going to be games when Debo Samuel's back healthy, where I think Samuel could have the big game where McCaffrey doesn't. I think the floor is going to be strong. But as defenses start to react and Shanahan is going to take what he knows he can manipulate against defenses, I think he really wanted to beat the Rams over the head with Christian McCaffrey because they have that little rivalry between him and McVay. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's going to be interesting, Pat. Yes, high, high, high floor for McCaffrey. But I don't think we're going to see last week's game every week once Debo gets back. What do you yeah. think? Interesting point about uh, him maybe trying to stick it to McVeigh, especially with the uh, reports that the Rams were also in on <laughs> Christian McCaffrey. Oh, man, that's hilarious. But yeah, I mean, funny, he's been there less than uh, 10 days and they're already using him on gadget plays, uh, throwing a, a <laughs> throwing an option pass. Um, yeah, like I worry about the effect on Debo. Like I, I as soon as that trade went down, I, I worried about what it was going to do to Debo's value. And I do agree with you that there are probably going to be some Debo spike games. Um, but we saw a lot of Debo spike games in 2021, and we just haven't seen as many so far. And I worry that um, this is going to kind of continue the trend of, of the offense maybe away from him a little bit. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're so dangerous. I, I love your point about positionless football. And, uh, you know, Kyle Shanahan is the, the perfect guy to use a chess piece like Christian McCaffrey. And it's going to make for some fun watching, I think. Like, you know, we already saw it tested against a, a pretty decent defense yesterday. And, um, you know, McCaffrey was able to help totally exploit the Rams defense. So, uh, uh, go ahead. You were going to make another oh, point. Thank you so much. You anticipated. I barely even breathed and you <laughs> that. Yes. So what I want to point out is I think part of the reason that Debo Samuel hasn't been as explosive as he was last year as defenses have accounted for him. They saw the body work. Now, they haven't used him as much as a runner as they did in the second half last season, but defenses knew what to expect. He wasn't surprising anybody anymore. But the emergence of McCaffrey on this roster, it allows Shanahan to find new creative ways to deploy Samuel. So I still think Debo Samuel is an elite player, but I don't think he'll be figured out after he's back in the lineup with Christian McCaffrey. Since we're on the 49ers, Jim, do you think uh, this sort of, I don't know, it seemed like they were really, uh, they were, they're, we're forced to use George Kittle as a blocker more early in the season. And we saw him get 15 targets over his first three games. Um, now all of a sudden it's like Kittle has been unchained. I think part of it was getting Trent Williams back after he missed a couple of games from injury. Um, I don't know. Do you think we continue to see this heavier Kittle usage in the passing game? Or do you think it's going to be kind of a mixed bag week to week? I still think it's going to be week to week. I wish it wasn't. I wish we could have a world where George Kittle's going to see double digit targets. You know, and he had the good game last yesterday in week eight, but it was five targets. And at the end of the day, it was three catches for 39 yards and he scored and that was great. And he had a couple good games prior with higher target volume, but 
though they were two different games. Kansas City, that was a come from behind game where they were, you know, having to catch up. And even the Atlanta game, they were down two touchdowns in that game. And it that forced them to open things up. But as that defense gets healthier, I don't know how much they want Jimmy Garoppolo putting the team on his shoulders. And I think the addition of McCaffrey makes it so that they don't have to. And it's funny that touchdown reception McCaffrey had, that was an overthrow by Jimmy G, but of course he jumped up in the air and made it happen, right? Yeah, that was an acrobatic catch for sure. Let's talk about another dual run catch threat at running back, uh, but one who is maybe his value is moving in a different direction. Should Leonard Fournette's uh, stakeholders be nervous, Jim? Like the last few weeks have not been pretty, and it looks to me as if Rashad White has more juice. You know, you're right about that. Rashad White probably does have a little more juice, and and I hate to make a comment like this, but Leonard Fournette looks like a player who just got paid. Last year, he looked like a player who was trying to get paid. Now, that's probably a terrible thing to say, so it's probably more than that. But I think the bigger issue, though, Pat, is the interior offensive line is a major problem for the Buccaneers. The Buccaneers are running the ball way too heavily on early downs, and teams have these trends, and they understand that's what they're doing. Therefore, between the bad interior line and the tendency to run on early downs, it's very easy to attack that, and Leonard Fournette has nowhere to run. Whereas if we're using Rashad White in a change-up role, it's a different dynamic. Like you said, he has more juice. Or if they're using him a little later in games when the score is kind of like not 0-0 anymore and the tendencies kind of change a bit. So I think Rashad White's benefiting from that a little bit. But I'm very concerned about Leonard Fournette. Now, earlier in the season, he was getting quite a few targets, but those have even tapered off the last couple of weeks. So it's not looking good right now. And as you intimate, Rashad White probably continues to see a little more action with the coming weeks. He's bordered 35% snap share in some games, and I could see that going into the 43 to 45 range over some time. Yeah, and um, uh, like I think it's just like there are a number of different factors sort of putting pressure on Fournette's uh, fantasy value, I guess. There's Rashad White behind him. There's Chris Godwin being there now and functioning as that short area receiver mm-hmm. and that outlet for Brady, who doesn't want to hold on to the ball at this stage of his career and, and take those hits. So, yeah, it just seems like um, we had a unique set of circumstances adding up to huge Leonard Fournette value late last season, and we just don't have the same formula this year. Do you think Tua Tungavailoa can be one of the few difference makers at the quarterback position, Jim? Like, I mean, the number of difference-making quarterbacks is down this year. It would be nice if, if Tua sort of ascended to that status. You know, what's interesting with Tua Tungavailoa that I've seen so far is when the Dolphins have played a team with a strong pressure rate or a very good blitz package, he does tend to struggle a bit more. Uh, he is somebody who needs to be kept clean. I did. I was advocating him for DFS yesterday because Detroit, I know they have Aiden Hutchinson, but they have a really low pressure. They don't get any consistent pressure. And if you give Tungo Vailoa a little bit of time, the stress that those receivers put on the defense, it, it's unbelievable. And the accuracy is very real for Tungo Vailoa. He wasn't accurate in week seven, but I think that was rusty coming off of the concussions. But um, I think he's going to be very week to week. But I think 
if you're counting on him every week without looking at the matchup, I think that could be dangerous. I, again, I'm going to take the route of pressure rate. And if they're playing a team with a high pressure rate, I think there's a lot more downside from a given weeks because I think he does tend to drop his eyes when pressure comes. I don't think he's extremely strong at second reaction throws, but if he has time to take the quick read and rip it, then I think he's just fine. So it's really going to be matchup based. He'll have ceiling games, Pat, but I think there's going to be some floor games in there too. Yeah, that's fair. Tell me, is Deonta Foreman's fantasy value fleeting or legitimate? You know, I thought that going into the season, he impressed me in Tennessee last year, took over for Derrick Henry. I'm going to say he ran for 4.3 yards per carry, but he ran hard. He ran with some nuance. It wasn't just running in a straight line. He actually, he made moves. He made some people miss. And for a big guy, you know, I mean, obviously he is not elite with the lateral agility, but he's got enough wiggle, I think, to consistently make yardage. And I felt that if Christian McCaffrey, when he was with the Panthers, had gone down, I, I was very favorable on the possibility that Foreman would be a strong fantasy back. Now, was I would I predict 118 yards with three touchdowns like he had yesterday? No, but I think he's a very good NFL running back. And, you know, the run blocking is not horrible in Carolina. So no. I think overall, I, I think we can roll with him. I think it, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy. I think I did a, pot, a stream just before I got on with you. And I was saying, it's going to be very hard each week to put him outside of my top 20 running backs. And it might be hard as I look at the board to put him outside the top 15 or 16. Yeah. He's even got a little bit of pass catching ability, which is a total surprise. If you watch him play in college where like he was never asked to do that. He was in that weird offense where they would spread it out and he would be the, the lone guy in the backfield. And I think he had a 200 or a 2000 yard rushing season. Um, but yeah, like he just was never asked to do that. And he actually looks pretty good. He's, he's kind of like a, uh, you know, Ramondre Stevenson type in some ways. So Jim, this podcast is going to be released on Tuesday, November 1st, which just so happens to be the NFL trade deadline. As uh, I alluded to earlier, do you think it matters if the Rams do make a trade for a running back this week? Because it seems to me like their running game is just broken. And I don't know if it can be pieced back together again, like that offensive line just can't create any running room. Uh, I know people are going to be excited if the Rams trade for say Kareem Hunt, but man, I don't know. I just think the state of the offensive line is going to continue to be a big problem no matter who's lined up in the backfield. You know, you bring up a great point, Pat. The offensive line is very problematic. They're down to third stringers in some positions and it's not getting better and you can't scheme your way around that. And it's funny, Kareem Hunt, I don't think he's been very good this year. He's a career low yards per carry, and yet he's had like 66 carries. He has the ability to break out running behind a great Cleveland line. And the change up to Nick Chubb, it doesn't get better than that. You catch defense, it's softened up, and yet he's done very little. Whereas Chubb is having like a career year, Hunt is having a career worst year, and they're in literally the same situation. And I wonder, now Hunt is 27, and I know that's not old. And I know he hasn't had a ton of mileage on his tire, so to speak. But I wonder if he lost a little something this year, Pat. But to your question, I don't know that there's a running back that they're going to be able to get that's going to be able to change their situation. I don't think so. 
Yeah, I'm with you. And uh, it's good point about Hunt. Like, I, I know a lot of people are just um, the take is that, well, he's sort of buried behind uh, Chubb. But like he has had standalone value in the past and he's not delivering it this year with more or less the same kind of opportunity he's had before. Uh, tell me this, Jim, is Greg Dulcich for real? That's a hard one, right? Because you see him open, very, very wide open on a couple of plays. He had a touchdown in his first game where it was a blown coverage by J.C. Jackson in the zone. He didn't pass off to another player, and so that wasn't covered. And then yesterday he was somewhat forgotten down the sideline, not completely, but somewhat forgotten. And and at some point, part of the game planning process, teams are going to make a note of him, but – I mean, at some point they're going to be, they're going to have to have weapons and they're going to have to throw the ball. And I don't, whatever's happening to Cortland Sutton, that's not getting done. I tell you what, if they trade Jerry Judy, that would be really good for Dulcich. But I have to think there has to be some regression. How often does, was he a third or fourth round tight end? How often do they come in and make a big difference that quickly? Usually it doesn't happen. I, I think it's just been a combination. He's a good player, but things have kind of broken right in these first couple of games. Yeah, you summarized that well. When J.C. Jackson blew that coverage on him, I, I remember thinking that people were going to you know, conflate that with Dulcich being this uh, immediate impact tight end and uh, that it might be a little dangerous. But then like, it does seem like all those targets that were being spread around to Albert O and Eric Saubert and all these other you know, oddball tight ends the Broncos had, at least Dulcich is sort of like, compiled all those targets like he is the guy now so um you know i i am definitely not ready to move him up to tight end one status but he's at least a reasonable streaming tight end two type so just when it looked as if antonio gibson's value was on the verge of just completely evaporating scott turner and the commanders realized it might actually be a good idea to use him as a pass catcher uh you know former college wide receiver and all Do you think he can be a useful fantasy asset the rest of the way in this sort of newish role that they've got for him? I want to laugh and say we could trust him completely until he fumbles the ball. Yeah, Uh, that's right. (laughs) That that is the wild card, Jim. Oh, it scares me because, you know, last year, the fumbles, especially in the red zone. And I think ultimately that was why they wanted to bring Robinson in because Gibson was fumbling near the goal line with frequency. And, but then I think that he doesn't have the nuances of running back that the coaching staff likes. I, I think he's a very good runner, but I don't think he's yet a professional running back. So I think they have issues with that. So you hit the nail on the head. They got him involved in the passing game. They still got him seven carries, didn't do a lot with it, but the seven targets was important. And Scott Turner is very good at scheming up an offense. We saw him do it with Curtis Samuel, even back at Carolina, and then the beginning of the season. And as fast as Samuel is, how much more dynamic and powerful is Antonio Gibson? And getting him out of the backfield weaponized, it is something that could really work for them. And Taylor Heineke seems to mesh well with that. Now, when Carson Wentz gets back, we may have another issue. But I think you're cautiously optimistic with Gibson. Look, you're starting him right now as a flex, and you're hopeful that he moves into the RB2 equation. But, again, it's always pins and needles. 
because he's drawn the ire of that coaching staff and Ron Rivera too often in a couple of years. Yeah, he is now just starting to peek his head out of the doghouse, and you worry that he's going to be right back in there with uh, you know one sloppy fumble. So let's hope that's not the case. Yeah. All right, Jim, I have been asking all my guests of late about their biggest hits and misses from 2022, at least so far. Certainly we have time for uh, players to reverse their fortunes one way or the other. Which players to this point have hurt you the most in 2022? Yeah, we can go through the running backs for sure. Um, I definitely like the idea of Cam Akers and Elijah Mitchell and Chase Edmonds. And then there were leagues where I had all three of them on the same team because I didn't want to invest super early in running back. And so I was going like third round, fifth round, seventh round. And that didn't end up very well. Those are the biggest misses of them all, I think. Those That has to encapsulate the season because I had a, at least one of them on many different rosters. Man, Edmonds is one who really tripped me up. And I was just kind of not in on him for a lot of the offseason. And then, I don't know, I just uh, started kind of listening to some smart people who were convincing me that he was the best back in this backfield and you know the, the offense was going to boom and... They were kind of right about everything except, uh, I don't know, I just didn't give as much respect to Raheem Mostert as I needed to. And, uh, you know, that was a, a fatal flaw. So, yeah, he tripped me up to what about players who have been big hits for you, guys who have, uh, you know, you were kind of on from the start and, and things have kind of played out the way you envisioned. You know, I had a lot of middling guys that it, but I hit. I haven't had any of the big home run guys this year. I didn't take a quarterback early, so there was no Josh Allen in my life. And Aaron Jones is just beginning to become something. Um, I've invested in T. Higgins in quite a few leagues. And again, that hasn't been great, but that's starting to come around. There hasn't, I think, I would say tight end. That's, and as dumb as it sounds, the two tight ends, Goddard and Ertz, have been very helpful on a lot of my teams. Those have been very helpful. Yeah, just um, middle-class tight ends who have actually played up to their middle-class status. And I think there were some like sort of um, imposter middle-class tight ends who, who yes. haven't panned out. And to, to get some of the real ones, yeah, that, that helps a lot. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's Jim Coventry of Rotowire. Find his work at rotowire.com. Catch him on the SiriusXM Fantasy Channel and find him on Twitter at Jim Coventry NFL. Great to catch up with you, Jim. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it and hope everyone has the best of luck in week nine. And that's going to do it for this week's show. My thanks once again to our guest, Jim Coventry of Rotowire. Find him on Twitter at Jim Coventry NFL. I need to thank my trusty producer, Calm Kelly the finest producer of fantasy football podcasts in all of Ireland. Find him on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. The music for Fits on Fantasy is provided by the legendary Milwaukee ska band International Jet Set. And as always, my heartfelt thanks to all of you for listening to and supporting the show. Please come back again next week when I'll be joined by another great guest. Until then, so long, everyone. I've got a head.